Good afternoon, and welcome to the Middle East Forum's webinar and podcast series, Israel Insider with Ashley Perry. I'm Stacey Roman, and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Ashley Perry, advisor to the Middle East Forum's Israel office, join us here each week to update us on all the events going on in Israel. Mr. Perry will be giving us a briefing on current Israeli affairs for 15 minutes, then open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. Now with that, I will turn the discussion over to Mr. Ashley Perry. Thank you very much, Stacey. And first of all, apologies for last week. Uh, as you know from the emails that were sent out, there were some technical problems, but they have thankfully been uh, fixed. Uh, so there's quite a lot to get through because there's, uh, you know, quite uh, maybe even two weeks of uh, news to get through. Um, so I'd like to start where we were supposed to start last week, but maybe we'll have to deal with it in a little bit less detail. Um, which is the Lebanese, uh, the Israel-Lebanon Maritime Agreement, let's call it. Uh, there's all sorts of names that have been uh, used uh, to denote this agreement. Um, but what is clear is there's no agreement within Israeli politics exactly what it means. Just to give a very brief overview, um, you know, the details are online. So if anyone wants to know a little bit more about it, uh, please, please uh, look it up. I'm not going to go into the details themselves. They're not something which I understand clearly as someone who's never negotiated a maritime border agreement. But what I want to uh, say is how it's perceived and how it could play out in the Israeli election. So uh, for a number of years, um, there have been quite a number of uh, findings of uh, quite significant gas fields off the coast of Israel. Uh, one of the latest being a number of years ago, what's called the Karish um, um, oil field, which basically um, was well within Israel territorial waters. There seemed to be no doubt. Lebanon, Lebanese authorities for quite a while had accepted uh, that point. Um, and the debate was exactly what was going to happen next. There was also another uh, uh, finding of an oil field. No one's sure exactly um, how much there is in that uh, particular field, uh, gas field, I should say, which is called Kana. Uh, it was supposed to be very much, part, at least in, in great part, within Israeli uh, territorial waters. Um, but what basically set off this round of negotiations was uh, in the summer, when for the first time, I believe, Israel or the company that uh, had won the, the tender uh, to basically develop the uh, the gas field, uh, took out a boat to develop it, to look into it, to start work on it. And uh, from that moment on, we saw uh, Hezbollah especially, but uh, the Lebanese government to a lesser extent, to start to uh, saber rattle. Um, and uh, to a point where Hezbollah sent over two unmanned drones over the Karish uh, uh, field, to basically send Israel a message. Israel actually shot down the two unmanned drones, but the point was made that Hezbollah has the possibility, the potential, the capability of reaching and even targeting the Karish um, gas field. Um, what came next was uh, an intense negotiations brokered by the Americans. The important part of these negotiations is they weren't really between two parties, or at least not directly. Obviously, we know Lebanon does not recognize Israel. Uh, uh, Lebanon refuses to deal directly with Israel, so everything had to go through uh, uh, American mediation. And in fact, the agreement is not between two parties. Both parties signed 
sort of a deal or letters of intent, an agreement with the Americans who would oversee it and guarantee uh, the eventual uh, th that everything uh, within the agreement would uh, come to fruition. But the, uh, in, in, you know, the way it's perceived in Israel depends on where you sit. The government, the current government, uh, led by interim prime minister Yair Lapid, uh, has declared this a victory, has basically said that um, it is a successful exercise in diplomacy. It's one that lessens um, the potential of war between Israel and Hezbollah, Israel and Lebanon. It means that Lebanon recognize uh, some sort of boundary with Israel, which again, reading through the agreement shows that that's not specifically true. Lebanon specifically wanted to mention that it does not recognize this as a permanent border and everything's open for the future. But uh, it was one that was recognized by the Americans, by the international community, even I believe the Security Council, or at least a body, a significant body within the UN has uh, recognized it, has credited it, has acclaimed it uh, in the last few days. And it, it bolsters uh, Yelapi's diplomatic credentials, that he's a person who's able to make an agreement. The other side has obviously gone uh, in a very different direction. It has branded this as a capitulation to terror. As I said, um, there was uh, even uh, the former US uh, ambassador to Israel, David Friedman, who served under the Trump uh, administration, basically said, uh, he doesn't understand what happened. Last time he was involved, it was something like 55% uh, to 45% to Israel at that point. And now Israel gets nothing more than the uh, original starting point. And uh, Lebanon's got 100% of its demands. Uh, this was something that was played out very much on the right wing, that Israel gained nothing and lost quite a lot. Lebanon gained everything. And it did so because of its saber rattling, because of Hezbollah's um, uh, you know, uh, launching of uh, the unmanned drones and also saying that this is, uh, uh, you know, a red line for them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so that's very much something which has drawn lines uh, within Israeli politics. Uh, for the first time, I would argue, in these elections, there's something which right and left can sort of uh, get into. Now, why this is going to play out until the elections is not just on uh, the sort of right and left issue, whether Israel... Uh, uh, did relinquish territory, did not relinquish territory, whether it was a good agreement or not. You know, there's there's a, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, symbolism in there. People like to go back to the Oslo Accords and how Israel gave into the Palestinians, etc. It's it's nothing on 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 that level or that stage. Where the battle now appears to be is in the realm of legitimacy. First of all, uh, we've talked about this in previous elections and even during this election campaign. There is uh, a law in Israel uh, which says that uh, the government is not allowed to take any great steps uh, during a campaign uh, period, obviously not to give it an advantage, uh, moving uh, ahead of the polls. Now, the government has argued that this was something that was time-bound, it was necessary, it had to be signed, uh, so that's why they went ahead and did it. Um, today, there was a meeting of the Defence and Foreign Affairs Committee in the Knesset, uh, where basically the agreement is sitting now for two weeks. Uh, the opposition has said there needs to be a vote on it. Some have even argued there needs to be a referendum on it. They say that referendums are necessary uh, and there is a precedent for it, for the giving away of any territory. The government would argue that, uh, A, this is not territory, it's maritime area, and there is definitely 
a, a great area on that. It's not the same as giving away land territory uh, and, or even territory very, very close uh, to Israel's borders. Um, but the, this is the case they're making. They're saying that a, gov a government, an interim government, has no legitimacy to do so. The government knows that it cannot try and pass it through the Knesset because it quite clearly lacks the 61 necessary. So what they have chosen is to basically say that the Knesset can look it over for two weeks and then it's going to go to the cabinet for a vote, which coincidentally or not, is going to take place a few days before the elections. Uh, which means there's going to be no legislative oversight, just executive. Well, there will be oversight, but they will not have the chance to vote on it. Uh, this is something very much uh, that the Likud and the Religious Zionist Party are, are making uh, quite a song and dance about. They really want um, it to be put before uh, the Knesset. They said the government and interim government does not have uh, that legitimacy. Um, and this really will run and run. Uh, both sides are trying to present it as something which plays to their uh, base, uh, to their ideological base. Um, but uh, it's certainly something which, uh, which will run, as I said, up until the elections. It's clear that it has the cabinet majority. Ayelet Sheked appears to be um, the only significant voice raised against the agreement. She will vote against, but uh, uh, let's not forget she is someone who's very much tried to move across to the you know, return, if she will put it, to the right-wing religious camp, which is led by Netanyahu. So she will certainly want to be seen ideologically in that camp. So she will certainly uh, be seen as someone who uh, votes against it. But apart from her, uh, maybe as Hendel and one or two others, it, it will certainly uh, vote, uh, uh, it will certainly pass uh, when it comes before uh, the cabinet. But the most important thing is finally, uh, and we've talked about this quite a lot, we are having some issues. We're having some actually policy differences between the camps, between the parties. It's not just about give us your vote. It's not just about who will sit with who. There are actual differences. And we saw this really come to the fore in the last few days. Uh, we talked very much how this is an unusual campaign period because of the Jewish holidays, which just ended a few days ago. Uh, and now we see really that the campaigns are being ratcheted up. Budgets, a lot of budgets were really uh, sort of uh, uh, put aside for, for this time because they knew people's attention were during the holidays, whether you're religious or not. These are still important. Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, and Sukkot, Simchat Torah are holidays which are celebrated even by the non-religious, whether traditional or, or secular. So we, we have really seen one of the shortest real campaign uh, periods begin uh, this week. And we saw some issues come out. Uh, one of the things I've certainly been talking about to many of the political leaders, leaders of parties, uh, potential uh, members of Knesset, is the need to have forward-looking visions. You know, what do uh, voters gain when they vote for a party? Well, they could certainly led the way uh, this week. Netanyahu put out an idea, which certainly plays into the cost of living uh, debate, where uh, for the first time he says that childcare from the age of zero up until three will now be paid for by the state. As is current, from three upwards is, uh, is provided by the state, but he is now saying that it will be from zero to three, quite where he gets the billions of shekels in budget. He doesn't say, and no one's really asked, but this is certainly something which, uh, certainly those with large families, whether in the ultra-Orthodox or the religious public, certainly those more on the right, 
perhaps will 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 certainly uh, adhere to or will 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 enjoy. Um, don't forget, Likud voters generally come from the lowest socioeconomic sectors of Israeli society, the development towns, etc., which we'll talk about in a second. So certainly that's something that could engage them uh, very strongly. Uh, on the other side of the map, we had uh, Benny Gantz's party put out what they called as the Eisenkot, uh, Eisenkot plan, named after number three in the party, Gabby Eisenkot, former IDF chief of staff, actually served under uh, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Netanyahu, and he's basically promising to bolster personal security, add many members of the police, add border guards, uh, bolster the IDF's ability to fight terrorism, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There's some interesting details in there, and I would suggest uh, people have a look. Uh, but again, it's a forward-looking vision. It's saying this is what you'll get from voting for us. They're counting on the fact that there's a, a, a larger amount of unrest. Among, uh, in, uh, amongst Palestinians, especially in East Jerusalem, over the last couple of weeks, to sort of show that you know he and the uh, Eisenkot and the party leader, another uh, former IDF uh, chief of staff and current defense minister Benny Gantz, uh, are the men uh, to put uh, the situation right. Finally, we have um, an interesting plan put out by uh, Bezalel Smotrich uh, of the Religious Zionist Party and. Um, Simcha Rotman, who is his sort of legal person, uh, the person who's made it their um, sort of career to reform, or as they put it this week, restart the judicial system. They argue, as many do on the right, that ever since the 1990s, there's been a lot of uh, judicial activism. Now, what does that mean? Is that there are two main, main thoughts. Uh, within um, judicial philosophy around the world. There are those uh, Supreme Court justices or justices who basically feel that um, it should be left as much as possible up to politicians to legislate. They stay out of it unless there's something really egregious that they need to step into. Then there's the other side, which is judicial activism. That, the first one is ju judicial passivism, uh, passivity, and this is uh, judicial activism, which states that they... Uh, have the right to basically get involved in any issue they like and strike down uh, any law or potential law uh, if they see fit. Uh, and Israel has an extreme example of that ever since the 1990s with the, let's say, revolution of uh, former Supreme Court justice or uh, president of the Supreme Court, um, Aaron Barak, who, whose, whose basically worldview was that he should, you know, it's, it's his job to get involved anywhere and everywhere. And ever since then, Israel has been known as one of the most, uh, having one of the most uh, overactive or activist uh, judicial systems. A lot of people on the right feel that even when the, the will of the country means that the right should be in power, a lot of its uh, issues, policies and laws will or have been struck down because of uh, this overactivist tendencies in the Supreme Court uh, justice system. And they argue many of these justices, which um, the, as the system is today, they, they sort of vote on the next generation of justices, are ideologically very much on the left and uh, antagonistic to a lot of right-wing uh, views. So uh, the Religious Zionist Party has written a very lengthy uh, manifesto on this to reform what they call restart, uh, change the balance back towards decision makers and politicians and away from unelected officials, as they would call it, the, 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 the members of the Supreme Court justice. So the, the public is starting to get some issues um, ahead 
uh, of elections. We're less than two weeks uh, away from elections. Um, but the most important thing and what's going to decide these elections is who can bring the base. We talked a little bit about Likud, uh, who have the major support in the lower sectors, uh, lower socioeconomic se sectors, especially in the development house. And what we've seen over the last few uh, elections is a lowering of the amount of people who came out to vote from these sectors, as opposed to the more centre-left bastions, Tel Aviv, the larger cities, where the uh, the voter has pretty much uh, remained steady. That is why we've seen again and again, and we still see it even today, even though there are issues, Likud is very much determined more than anything else to get out its base, to make sure that those who didn't vote last time will vote this time. And their original plan, uh, a sort of a slogan was one plus one equals four, which means one person should meet, uh, should, um, should bring another person and then we'll have four years of stability. That is really where they're going because they've understood that they can't really bring too many more voters across from the center or the center left. Um, and at the moment, they are being picked off mostly by the Religious Science Party. The, the exceptional popularity of Otsma Yudit, uh, Jewish power leader uh, Itmar Ben-Gvir, who is a member of the, um, or whose party is running with uh, Smotrich's Religious Zionist Party, is pretty much picking up a, uh, a seat at the Likud's expense every week, every two weeks. Uh, Likud has gone down in some polls to 30, uh, Lapids, Yeshatidis, really at the heels. Um, there was a time where the difference between those two largest parties was 12 seats. According to some poll, it's as low as five. Most polls have it uh, seven or eight, but it's clear that they could now see that their greatest chance um, is basically making sure that those who are, uh, you know, so-called Likud voters or those in Likud bastions come out and vote. Uh, another major uh, focus is the Arab vote, uh, because at the moment, the two Arab parties, there, there, are, there are three Arab parties. One is way beyond the, um, the, the, the chances of sitting next to Knesset, and the two remaining Arab parties, um, uh, Tal and Ram, uh, uh, are basically on four seats at the moment, very close, um, you know, sort of teetering on the 3.25 or close to that, which uh, you need to gain uh, to get into the next Knesset. If one more party should fall below that um, percentage, then it's almost certainly going to be uh, a, a liquid victory. Another thing to look out for finally is Eyal Shaked. Um, a lot of people are saying to uh, Netanyahu, it's about time that he basically allowed some of his voters to go across to Shaked, as he did in the past with Smotrich and Ben Gvir, ironically now who are his greatest threat. Um, because if Shaked does pass uh, and it does get the four seats necessary for Knesset representation, it's almost a certainty that Netanyahu will be the next prime minister. Um, there seems to be a certain amount of history there between the two, a certain amount of animosity, like, uh, Netanyahu at this point does not seem to be doing that. He seems to be going hard against potential voters of Shaked, uh, and she see, still seems to be getting no more than 2% in most polls, quite a way away from the 3.25 that she needs to pass and have Knesset seats um, after the uh, upcoming elections. So at the moment, uh, it's really neck and neck, as it has been. Um, some polls have Netanyahu 60, some polls have 59, 
the days where he was getting 61, 62 seem behind us. But again, it's all about election day. It's all about who comes out and votes, who manages to get their base out, and who manages to make a party that was less expected uh, under the, um, the threshold and thus with no representatives in the next Knesset. And with that, I'm happy to answer any questions. All right, thank you so much. The first question is from Carrie Hillebrand. Do you see any connection between the proposed maritime agreement and the IDF opening up the border of Hajar? Um, no, I haven't heard um, too much of a connection between that. You know, it, everything could be connected. Hezbollah, uh, you know, uh, are certainly a party to be reckoned with in Israel. And Israel is always watching what's going on there. Again, something which... Um, the left of center or the current government uh, point out to in this particular agreement um, is it also helps the Lebanese economy because obviously we know the Lebanese economy is has been sinking fast and it's destabilizing the country and a destabilized Lebanon uh, they would argue um, is not good for Israel so uh, anything which helps stabilize uh, Lebanon especially its economy uh, can only be a good thing for Israel. Thank you. Taffy Gould asks, where do you see the left-right division amongst Israeli voters today? As I said, historically, it's, it's been about territory, it's been about um, security, um, but mostly it, 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 it's dissipated. It's certainly the lines have uh, become more vague because you see people on the right in what's now called the center-left camp. You have people like Gidon Saar, Zeb Alkin, who are to the right of someone like uh, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu on land issues. You know, Gidon Saar uh, is someone who doesn't agree on ever giving up any inch of land, whereas Netanyahu has signed agreements to give up uh, territory and voted, um, you know, on things like the disengagement, although with the final vote he didn't vote for, but he voted three times on the way to. Um, so that, that's become certainly blurred. As I said, the issues are starting to return. But the fact that there are so many right-wing figures in the so-called left-center camp shows that there is a blurring of it, and much of it comes down to personality politics. So it's it's very hard to say exactly what differentiates uh, between the two sides. It's more of a what what uh, many people say is Israeli politics is very tribal. I think that's always a little bit overstated because you can see ten years ago different patterns, twenty years ago certain uh, different patterns, but people who define themselves as right-wing will vote for a party which defines itself as right-wing, regardless of what it actually does, what its issues are. Uh, as I said, you could make the case that Netanyahu could sit very nicely ideologically on the center-left, considering much of his past activities, but he defines himself very much as a right-wing security hawk. Um, so those who consider themselves right-wing security hawks would feel very comfortable voting for him, uh, regardless of the history or the facts. So it's very much uh, tribal today and personality-based, as opposed to the, the really hard-hitting ideological uh, policy uh, orientation of uh, previous generations, let's say. Understood. And and uh, you were talking about the, the different ways that um, the parties are trying to differentiate themselves and going to your, your last point there of it being more tribal and location-based. Uh, Will this work with these these different uh, trying to help the voters see the future? Well, 
as, as I've said, as someone who's worked in, in, in many elections, the key to any uh, election victory is what's called GOTV, get out the vote. On the day of election, uh, it's really important, especially in a proportional uh, representation system uh, like Israel's, where every vote counts. Every vote can be, you know, when each vote, uh, when each, uh, each seat can be worth tens of thousands, um, you know, that's not that much in, in, in the greater scheme of things. So if, you know, Likud's plan really does energize its base, really does make sure that any potential voter out there goes out and votes Likud on election day, then they will have their 61, regardless of what the polls say. Because don't forget the polls, when, when you design a poll, you're basically just asking 500 people or whatever it is, it's usually 500 uh, people, how they will vote. And there's always going to be some who say they won't vote or they don't know yet, but they don't really factor that in. They usually just put all those who will vote and just put them in a nice pie chart. But on the day of elections, it all matters not who, you know, 500 random Israelis will vote for. It's how much of the people who say they're going to vote for a party or potentially could vote for a party will get out. Uh, the, the percentage of voters uh, over the last few years because of our incessant election um, uh, uh, you know, cycle has gone down. And as I said, the important thing for the Likud, which obviously Netanyahu and his advisors have looked at, is the fact that in their backyard, in their, amongst their base, it's gone down in greater um, uh, numbers than on the other side. The Arab uh, voting percentages have gone down drastically. And if they continue to go down um, to the point that some people have suggested, there is a very real danger that they'll be down from 15 seats only a short couple of years ago to four seats. And that will not be down because the Arab, represent, Arab numbers, uh, or, uh, the, the numbers of Arab Israelis have gone down, but the number of Arab Israelis who A, will go out and vote, and B, will vote for one of their Arab parties has dwindled. Interestingly enough, uh, interim uh, Prime Minister and Yeshatid leader Yair Lapid uh, has basically ma been making quite a, um, a stir in the Arab media. He's been doing quite a lot to try and drum up um, interest in these elections to try and make sure that they come out and vote. But there are those who say it actually could hurt him because if he manages to take some votes from the Arab parties to Yeshatid or maybe some of the uh, Zionist parties on the left, whether Merits or Labour, that could actually hurt his chances of returning to the, uh, the premiership. Because again, if one of those parties simply does not get the 3.25% necessary to cross the threshold, then it tips the whole balance. Um, so there are some who are saying that the strategy um, may not actually work to Lapid's, um, it, may, it may work against him at the end of the day. Again, everything remains to be seen. Um, if the Arab parties can get out and make sure that their people come out and vote, then uh, that's a whole different story. If they can manage to get three parties across, then that will certainly uh, harm Netanyahu's chance. But at the moment, one of the parties, Balad, who's running on its own, is, doesn't seem to be that close to the uh, threshold at this point. And as I said, the two remaining parties are perilously close uh, to that threshold. So that's something that Netanyahu would like to see the opposite, would like to see a lowering of the votes uh, in the Arab sector to ensure that he gets the 61. Understood, thank you. Sherry Beloker, uh, going back to when we were talking about the Lebanese and Israeli maritime border, 
Uh, could you specify whether the money would actually go to the Lebanese people or to Hezbollah? Well, officially, ostensibly, it would be a, a Lebanese government. So, that, you know, the Hezbollah are not party to this, but Hezbollah are party to um, the, uh, the, the Lebanese parliament, the Lebanese government. They're a very powerful and central actor in uh, the Lebanese political hierarchy. So it'd be impossible to leave them out. But obviously, Hezbollah are not mentioned in this agreement. And ostensibly, it doesn't go uh, to Hezbollah. And in fact, even the Americans have guaranteed that it won't go to Hezbollah. But at the end of the day, it's going to be very, very hard, A, to see if it does, and B, to stop it. Because as I said, Hezbollah are, you know, are a representative in the top levels of uh, Lebanese politics. Um, so it's going to be very hard to say that not one cent will go to uh, the Shiite uh, uh, Iran-backed uh, terrorist organization because they they are also a political party, um, but certainly in the agreement they are not mentioned at all. Thank you. Before we go, Elaine and Ken Leiter asked, how do Israelis feel about Australia's withdrawal of recognition for, of West Jerusalem as Israel's capital? Well, the average Israeli um, you know, it, it won't really have much meaning for, but certainly in the uh, Israeli diplomatic and political echelons, they're bewildered by this. Not, no one on the Israeli side had any wind of this. Not even the Israeli ambassador to Canberra was given a heads up on this. And even the proponents of this walk back of uh, Australian recognition of West Jerusalem as Israel's uh, capital have said that this was very poorly executed. It was just decided at one point. I mean, it was something that they threatened to do during the election campaign that Australia's uh, Labour Party but suddenly do it out of nowhere um, for no ostensible reason. Uh, certainly leaves a very bad taste in the mouth of many Israelis. Um, some are saying that the, Israel decided to go very harsh on this, really to stop the, the more major commitment, which would be for Australia to recognize a Palestinian state, because that would be a major coup for the Palestinians. And some uh, Israeli diplomats are saying behind closed doors that they needed to go tough against the Australians on this issue to send a message that, you know, OK, we're not happy about this, but uh, uh, should go no further. But it will certainly not help. Uh, yeah, Lepid, we talked about uh, earlier, burnishing his diplomatic and international credentials the fact that a major ally, Australia, just days before the elections, have just decided to walk back a recognition of Israel's capital uh, certainly won't uh, help his course at all. All right. Thank you so much. We've come to the close for our webinar and podcast. Ashley, thank you again for taking time to update thank us you. this week. For our viewers and listeners, please join us Friday at 1 p.m. Eastern for a webinar with Walter Russell Mean discussing charting the history of the U.S.-Israel relationship. Thank you all for joining us and I hope you have a great day.